Today on episode number 177 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Maria Anderson shares about how learning is not a spectator sport. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I was at a speaking engagement recently, and while they were reading my bio, they mentioned that line, we can have more peace in our lives. And a number of people in the audience burst out laughing, which was <laughs> really made me laugh. And so yes, we, we do get busy. And today's guest has a website, busynessgirl.com. So she certainly knows a thing or two about that. Maria Anderson joins me today, thanks to George Woodbury's recommendation. Thank you for suggesting her as a guest. She spent 14 years teaching at the college level, 16 years writing curriculum, and six years developing digital products for learning. She built iPad games to teach algebra, launched the Canvas Network MOOC platform, taught a MOOC on social media, built adaptive learning platforms used by McGraw-Hill, and worked as the director of learning design for Western Governors University. Maria is a software developer and CEO of a startup, a consultant, an author, a speaker, and a learning futurist. She holds degrees in math, chemistry, biology, business administration, and higher education leadership. Maria, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me. Well, I was introduced to you by George Woodbury and was just grateful for the introduction and before we start talking about today's main topic, I wondered if you would share a little bit. I, I was digging around on your website and having so much fun just exploring all the resources that are up there. And one of them really caught my eye. Could you talk a little bit about Wolfram Alpha? Because it's never come up on the show before and how you make use of that in your teaching. And then, of course, we'll dive into the main topic for today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Wolfram Alpha has been around for gosh, maybe like eight to 10 years now. And it's a search engine that also accesses like all the world's public data. So they have curators who, you know, intentionally build up the data that, that Wolfram Alpha uses. So you can do things like search for the population of a city. You can find how big a college is. Like anything involving numbers, you can you can pretty much just do a search for. You can compare two things with a comma between them. Um, so I think it's great for classes because whenever we want to like look at a real graph of something or find some data and talk about trends or things like that, we can just search for the data right there. And there's some really fun things that happen in real data, like um, breaks in breaks in the data and sudden jumps, and you can kind of speculate on you know what really happened. Textbooks are all about you know these beautiful smooth curves, but that's not the real world. So. Um, Wolfram Alpha has been really a fun, a fun way to bring that data into the classroom easily. It's been a few years since I looked at it, but it piqued my interest, especially because of your background and, and expertise in terms of your disciplines. And is it is it one of those that's pretty good at natural language? Or do you have to know exactly how to ask it a question? 
it's really good at natural language input. So like a lot, I mean, a lot of math students will use it to get help with problem solving. And, you know, it, what it does differently than a calculator is in a, in, for example, a TI graphing calculator, you have to put in the exactly correct syntax and tell it what you want. I want you to solve this. I want you to find a zero. I want you to graph it, you know, like, and well, for math, like you just put in the function in some form and it will process it, figure out what you're looking at. And then rather than you having to tell it exactly what you want it to do, it just does everything it can think of. So if you give it a, an equation for a line, it gives you the intercepts, it tells you the slope, it writes it in multiple forms. It, you know, it, it does everything it can think of that it's got in its brain with that mathematical function. So it's very different than a calculator. You get kind of the whole exploration space instead of just the one thing you told it to do. When I was reviewing your bio, it's it says, and I'm going to assume it's true, but we'll just go with that. I'm teasing you. Um, it says you hold degrees in math, chemistry, biology, business administration, and higher education leadership. Wow, that's a lot of degrees. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about sort of your pursuits in those areas and, and how sure. they got you to where you're, you're thinking today? So I... Um the first three degrees I did at once when I was um, an undergraduate. So that was math, chemistry, and biology. And there was, you know, some overlap between those degrees. You have to take chemistry for biology and you had to take math for chemistry. And it was kind of uh, my way of not being bored in college. So I just took a lot of classes every term. I was also going to a college where it didn't cost you anything more to take 21 credits than 15 credits. So once mm. you paid for 15, everything above that was free. So I just figured, well, you got a better deal if you took more courses, right? <laughs> uh, it was possibly a slightly crazy way to go about doing it. But um, so, you know, so I kind of did the whole STEM, you know, degrees thing and then um, went on to my graduate. I, I started actually as a chemical engineering major in graduate school and discovered that chemical engineering was not for me. It just wasn't social enough. I didn't have enough interaction with people. Weighing coal in a lab was just, not exciting. So, you know, I quit. And um, I remember somebody saying, well, getting an MBA is never a bad idea. So I kind of ended up with an MBA based on that premise that, you know, getting an MBA is never a bad idea. But, you know, I, I, I worked at, like part time as a teacher during that time, uh, teaching community college classes, and I really fell in love with it. And then I was like, wait, but I want to teach community college. So I want to teach math in particular. And so then I discovered you had to get a master's in math to be able to teach at a college. So that was five, what was that? Five degrees it was a master's in math. And then I managed to stay out of school for, I went on to be a professor and I managed to stay out of school for about a year. <laughs> and then I thought I would go back and get a PhD. Um, and at the time I thought I might go into administration. And so I um, did my PhD in higher ed leadership. They had a nice program in Michigan where you could do a lot of the courses via online or weekend classes so I could, you know, work full time while doing that. And so that's how I ended up with a higher education leadership degree. And what did your experience taking online classes, not just in that program, but in any of your experience? I know you've taught and also participated in MOOCs. I mean, what, what is sort of an overarching theme that we all need to be telling ourselves when it comes to online learning? So I think... I've become a little bit nervous about online learning for for one kind of fundamental reason, and that's that I feel like we've made online learning really transactional 
and we're missing the transformational piece. Mm. So we talk in leadership classes about the difference between transactional leaders and transformational leaders, that transactional leaders are always just making an exchange with you. You do this and I do this for you, right? And I feel like online learning has become very task list oriented. And it, it has been for good reasons. You know, we've done it all in this kind of pursuit of getting more students to succeed in online courses, which is a great reason to do it. But I'm afraid that in that taskifying of all of the, or that transactifying, however you'd like to say it, of all of the things that happen in an online course, we've kind of taken any joy or uh, excitement out of the learning. It's a very rote, you know, like do this, do this, do this, you're done with the unit, you know, like, and it just repeats like week after week after week. And I wonder today whether people take online courses and have those moments where they decide to change their career because of the online course they just took, or they develop a lifelong love of poetry or humanities or, you know, something because of that online class they just took, or if it's really, we've started to treat online classes like, you know, working at a fast food restaurant, you just go to work, you do the tasks you have to do when you leave, right? Hmm. And so I, I feel like, we need to put a little bit of attention back into that idea of spark and transformation and um, what really engages learners and, and makes them excited about the content. Let's give some examples then of what would be things that we might do that might fit under the category of transactional. I'm guessing quizzes. If I do a quiz every week in my online class, that's probably going to fit as transactional. What are some other ways that we're just checking those boxes? Or asking our learners so I think to check of, the boxes. <laughs> so I, I think one of the most famous examples, which is considered like a wide, uh, which is widely considered like a best practice in online courses is the good old make one post respond twice. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, isn't that transactional? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's three times. Don't, didn't anyone ever tell you it's three times? Respond three oh, times. Three times now. Oh, yeah. And yes. there's usually a paragraph or a word requirement yes. for the first response. Like it must yes. be, you know, 200 150 to words, words. 150 yep. words, yep. And, you know, proper punctuation, et cetera, which of course we all use normally on the internet, proper punctuation, right? That was sarcasm, by the way. And, you know, so I look at those and, and you watch what happens in an online course. You know, you've got 30 students in the discussion. Three of them make a very insightful 300 word post. And then the other 27 in the class read those three people's posts and kind of like paraphrase it. And, and the poor instructor has to go through and read like 30 of basically the same thing, right? And then they all respond on each other's posts. I mean, it's just transactional. We're doing these, these rarely do more than capture. I am punching the right buttons at the right time. And I think there are really simple practices we can take to, to change that, right? Like, for example, just taking a class of 30 and making it into six groups of five people, where each group has to answer the question within that group. Well, now at least three people with each of those groups has to actually make the original responses. They can't see each other's responses in the class, right? So just just doing that makes the conversations more interesting. But even better than that would be offering a choice of the discussions you can participate in. So, you know, rather than here's the one discussion you must participate in, here's six topics that relate to what we're talking about. Pick the topic that's actually of interest to you and discuss, you know, this question within that context. So for example, Let's say we were trying to um, get the students to talk about nutrition, a particular type of nutrition. 
you could have a one discussion oriented around nutrition for um, people with autism. You could have another one around nutrition for people with cancer, another one around nutrition for athletes, another one around nutrition for new moms, right? And probably your students are naturally going to gravitate towards the discussion that is actually relevant and interesting to their life, right? And that's going to potentially be that transformational moment in the online class where somebody says, wow, I didn't realize that nutrition connected, you know, with all of these things. And this one that's of particular interest to me, right? Now I'm interested in the subject. I just don't think we get that with these global one size fits all discussions that happen in online courses. And that's what I think is really the 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 key when I say that we've moved too far to transactional and we've we've lost transformational. A big pattern that I'm seeing in this too, and I'm sure you've heard this phrase is transactional being about those throwaway assignments. And the throwaway assignment would be, well, I just turned this in to my professor. No one else is going to see it, not even the other students in the class, but let alone anyone from the public sphere is never going to see it. And, and it's not geared toward my own goals and pursuits and passions. And, and changing right. that into the transformational where you talked about giving some more agency, having it be towards some broader goal. I, I have mentioned on recent episodes and am right in the middle of having my doctoral students write, and this is my first time and their first time doing an open textbook. And you describe this so well. It's like, I have no idea what the due dates are for this. I know we need to move along. It's only an eight-week class. It's not like we have that many choices. But I don't know. Is it the week two? Is it week three? We're going to have to see what happens together. And and it's yeah. going to be clunky. And it's going to not be perfect. And, and it's not all out there. But they are so motivated and excited about what's possible because it goes beyond something they're going to submit just for this class. And in that particular case, I also have the frustration where they only want to work on things related to their dissertation because it's a dual track kind of program. And so there's always this tension where I'm teaching a technology and leadership class and you want to write about your dissertation, but it's not about technology. <laughs> so there's there's that. Right. But the, the friction's gone. Because they see even something even bigger than their dissertations that they might walk away with. That's really fun. That feels transformational. I was going to mention one other thing, too. I found that sometimes giving another choice besides writing a response. So I've been having fun using Flipgrid, which is just one of the many tools that people can use to record video. And they just added a new feature I haven't tried yet. And that's that, yes, I can set up these predefined discussions. But there's also a little thing that's just this class has an idea. So it's a little empty shell for things that don't fit neatly into the topics that I thought of in the first place. So I can't wait to try that in future classes because I guess it's not going to show up on my existing ones. But next time I add a new thread, then there will be this little, yes, the, the little threads that I have planned out. But then anytime someone just has an idea, they can go up there and start a whole different conversation. And I just love what's possible when we open up whether in, in discussion boards, they always talk about sort of the what's that called the lounge or the just an open space for things that don't fit into any of these predefined topics. Yeah, I think I think there's also the the possibility that we should consider bringing back synchronous time in online classes. It doesn't have to be a time that 100% of the class can meet. But yeah. I think that there's a lot of value that happens in synchronous time, we learn to have, you know, conversations like we're having with each other in yeah. real time. Which is totally something that students will have to do in the job world in meetings. Even if they're virtual employees, we have meetings like this in real time, right? 
And I think that in that real time environment, you you wander the conversation wanders more into topics that just don't happen in structured um, asynchronous time. And so we miss out on those those opportunities to really explore topics with students. And um, I really am a fan of bringing back, you know, a requirement in some online courses. It's probably not appropriate for all of them, but certainly totally appropriate for some, especially courses like language or political science or, you know, even mathematics. Like it's really good to have problem sessions with students where they do problems in the sessions, like and get real time feedback on what they're doing. Right. But I, I think, you know, there's a there's a place to say like, okay, well, you know, we're going to have three online synchronous sessions a week. You need to attend one. They're at a variety of days and times. So you have some choice in which one you attend. It's up front. It's in the syllabus. You know, this is a requirement of the class. And I, you know, there's always going to be a student who can't do it. And you have to, you know, make some kind of adjustment. But there's always face-to-face students who can't make the test and who can't, you know, be to class on time and things like that. And we make adjustments for them. So, you know, just because there's a student that's not going to fit that schedule doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, right? Let's talk a little bit about how when we do get them in those synchronous sessions, what do we have to help them unlearn? Just like you talked about with discussion boards, we've got a, they're so used to that in classes that, okay, there's going to be a discussion and then reply to three people. And in my experience, okay, I show up to the online session and I put myself on mute. That's the first thing they'll do. And I'll be like, why, why did you put yourself on mute? And, and it's often because that's what they've been told to do. The very first thing is to mute myself because, well, oh my gosh, what if my dog barked or something? And I'm like, I don't mind. I mean, if their dog's barking all the time, yes, please put yourself on mute. But if your dog occasionally barks, I'd rather have that and have you feel like you're sitting right here with me. So what, what are some other ways we have to help people unlearn things when they actually do join these synchronous sessions? So I think the very first thing we have to help people unlearn is we have to have help the faculty unlearn lecturing. Yeah, yeah. I think the simple rule around a space like this is the faculty member is not allowed to lecture. They have to plan some kind of activity that will happen in this space that does not involve them holding the mic the whole time. And so, you know, with math, we do problems in a problem session. So it's like, all right, I'll post a problem up on the on the whiteboard. And everybody has a chance to work on it on, on their own. And as you start to I either, depending on the length of the problem, have them start using the chat window. I mean, we don't use chat windows enough in these sessions. We should use it more. Some of the students don't feel super comfortable talking on a mic, but you can get them to start chatting in steps of their answers or, you know, uh, their opinions along the way. And then, you know, calling on students, opening the mic to particular students, you know, making them all responsible that they could be called on. And if they get called on, it's their turn to talk, Right. But I think number one is tell the faculty member that the purpose of this session is 100% not to lecture to the students. They have to find something else to do. And if they wanted to lecture, what do we tell them? Like, okay, but I need to teach this piece of no, it. I've got to lecture. If you wanted to lecture, then record it. Yeah. Like, there's no reason to do it synchronously, right? Yep. Just record it in small chunks and put it up in the class somewhere. But that that's not what the purpose of a, of a synchronous session is. It shouldn't be for face-to-face classes and it shouldn't be for online classes. If we have the luxury of time in person with our students, then we should be doing things that are active in those in those sessions. We should avoid, you know, talking to our students as much as possible. How do you respond to people who are uncomfortable about online synchronous or asynchronous just just not being as effective as face-to-face learning? So I've I've used for years this example of a study that was done by Vilma Mesa out of the um, 
out of, I'm not sure if it was Michigan, University of Michigan or Michigan State. Well, we'll have it in the show notes. Yes, we will. Anyways, she did this study where she mapped what happened in classrooms. So she mapped every interaction between the faculty member and the student, student to student, et cetera, over a time period of an hour. And so you would look at these, these heat maps of classes and you would see, you know, stars for every question that was asked and who asked it, and then bubbles for every student that answered a question or when the instructor answered a question. And, and what you see from this, these maps, and it wasn't actually what she set out to study, but I use these maps all the time just to prove a point is that in typically every classroom, there's about three students responding to the instructor, and the rest are basically lurking in class. From the instructor point of view, what that does is create this feeling that your class is super interactive, because for you, it's super interactive. You're asking questions and fielding questions and answering questions all the time, right? It is super interactive, but the majority of your students are just watching the show. You have no idea whether they're learning in that class or not. You know, in these larger lecture halls, they have their computers open and, you know, probably there's a good 20% of the class that's like completely checked out of that lecture time, right? So if you're not doing something that's more active and engaging the students in class than, than lecturing to them, then that's it's not a good use of the time. They could have watched it. <laughs> that reminds me of Teddy Sborner. He was a past episode. He teaches at Harvard and he he's he's well he teaches statistics so it would make sense that he tries to measure every single thing in his class but just this I love I'm going to go look this article up and again I will post it in the show notes but just this idea of one of the things he brought up and that I'm cognizant of as well is we're not very good at our own heat maps just like you just pointed out like in our heads it feels like an entirely different experience than what the students actually experience. Cause we're, we, we just can't rely on ourselves as good objective measures of how engaging our classes are. And then how does online then help us be better at that? So I don't know that it necessarily helps us be better at that, but it, it I mean, in some cases it does theoretically more students are interacting because mm. they're participating in discussion boards, et cetera. But if, if it's not a high quality discussion board participation, I don't know that it's, actually much better than the nodding in class at us, right? <laughs> so I guess my point is simply that when people say that online is, is you know, somehow a degraded version of in class, it is maybe a degraded version for those three students who normally interact with you, but the other 27, it might actually be an upgraded version from watching a lecture, right? So I, I, I think it's just, uh, they're different formats and they have different strengths and weaknesses and different students uh, might flourish in one environment versus the other. One of the things that you talk about being so important is allowing students to explore more. Can you talk about why that's so important and then give us some examples from your classes and how you've helped students do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to come back to kind of this idea of how we play a video game because video games are so engaging, right? So when you are learning a new video game, like let's say we're, we're learning how to play the latest incarnation of Super Mario Brothers, right? So the way we do it is we like open up a level and we start exploring and we sometimes we get killed and we have to start over. And sometimes <laughs> we, you know, make it a long way down an interesting path and then kind of dead end ourselves back up. Uh, sometimes we run out of time. Sometimes we learn where secret things are, you know, but we do a lot of exploration in learning how to pass that level, right? Now, contrast that with the experience. If if I were to like hand you this game, but before you started to play, I told you exactly how to complete the level. 
like where are all the good things? How do you, what should you avoid? How should you move? How should you, you know, if I basically gave you all the cheat codes up front, the level isn't actually as much fun to play. I mean, you get through it, but it's not as much fun as if you actually got to explore it on your own. And then when you get to the next level, if I don't tell you how to play, you missed out on all the experiences that you would have had had you explored it yourself, right? So you no longer know how, how to interact with some of the things on the screen that you learned by accident in the first level if I didn't give you the cheat codes, right? And I think we run that danger in, um, in our content march and education. So we have like every class has become bloated with content, right? And we feel all this pressure to get through more and more content as the fields get bigger and bigger. And so we tend to just like try to kind of download all that information to students in as fast a method as possible, rather than letting them have the space to actually explore and learn some of the material, you know, on their own and find their own dead ends and their own exploration spaces. So uh, an example of this, I'll use an example for math. Um, some semesters I have students do something called an exploration on their problems. So I, I, I radically reduce the number of problems they have to do. And then on the problems that they do have to do, they're required to um, do something outside of what they were asked. So let's say the problem says to graph a function. So the answer would be the graphed function, but they have to do something else. They can't just graph it. So they can find a maximum, a minimum. They can try to figure out what the slope is somewhere on the function. They can tell me what happens if they add something to the function or subtract something from the function. They, they can tell me how to turn the function upside down and backwards. They, they can do anything they weren't asked to do in the original problem. But this opens up a conversation space that we don't normally have. And the world is not as cut and dry as the problems we see in text. There's extra information. There's, you know, there's chances to, to do things with, with data and with, with problems that they, they wouldn't normali normally have experienced. And it is these exploration spaces that actually allow students to transfer what they learn to other subject areas and higher level classes. So if we never let them explore these regions around the nice tidy little boxes of problems we put in classes and in textbooks, we're really in trouble. We're not teaching them how to transfer the content. We're not teaching them how to level it up to you know, higher class. I would have loved to have had you as a math teacher somewhere in my <laughs> educational experience because what happened was, and actually we saw a video of, of someone from Cornell, I think it was Cornell, I will look it up and post it in the show notes, because the school that my kids go to, they want to teach them how to think about math, not how to perform a series of functions that don't make any sense to them. And they gave the example in the video, and I won't do it justice, but of how, you know, I learned how to do long division, where, you know, you're carrying these numbers, and you're doing these things. But like, I don't, I can't explain to you why, I just know that that's how you do it, but I, I could never tell you why. And they, they want to help kids today think about math. And so you're, you're saying, yeah, I do in this particular function, I'm asking you to perform this, but at the same time, just asking you to play with what's there. That's really it. I think we should allow students to play a little bit more with the concepts we're teaching. So like, for example, if it was a history class and we were learning about a particular time period, and allowing the students to each take on some kind of persona in that time period. You know, I'm a, I'm a female child. I'm a teenage boy. I'm a mother of five. I'm a farmer. I'm a soldier. You know, like, if you take on this persona during this time period, what is life like for you? 
you know, we learn history through the the perspective of what we get in textbooks, but what we get in textbooks tends to be the history of famous people, right? And not this like, what would it like be like to be an average person during this time period? You know, like there are so many interesting perspectives we can play with throughout multiple subject areas and we just don't do enough of it. And that's, I think, what makes the subjects relatable and interesting. And again, that ability to have the transformational experiences where you really suddenly get why you're learning something. One last thing I did want to share with you is, can you talk a little bit about the importance of reaching an impasse? Yeah, so there have been numerous studies that look at uh, this idea of when is the ideal time for students to actually remember content that they they learn. and so it, it turns out that, that the ideal time to be given new content is at a moment of impasse. And that is a moment where you end up stuck, confused, a little bit frustrated. You, you can't figure it out yourself. It's that moment we all turn to YouTube and, you know, search for the video to help us fix the dishwasher or the video to help us solve a problem we're stuck on or, or something like that. And that is actually the perfect moment to learn it. And what's so hard about classroom instruction, and even I would say, you know, a lot of online forms of instruction is that we tend to, to treat learning like it's a nice linear path. And whatever I feed you, you will learn, right? Whatever I present in front of you, whatever you're, you're told to read, you'll read, whatever you're told to watch, you'll watch, right? But even if you do those things, even if you read the text when you're supposed to and watch the videos when you're supposed to, you don't actually learn until you engage with it. So until you do something else, And so it turns out that the moment, the perfect moment to actually deliver those videos and readings is the moment when somebody recognizes they're stuck. And so we should actually think about how we can design more stuck moments into online classes. And that's a really hard one because nobody particularly likes to be stuck until they get past stuck. So like if you ask educators, like, why did you become a teacher? Why did you become a professor? A lot of people say, oh, well, it was the aha moments, clearly, like, I became a teacher so that I could see students having aha moments, right? And when does an aha moment happen? It happens after the moment you were stuck, right? And so, you know, we have to figure out how to how to build that into classes, especially in online classes. I think our first inclination as online teachers was all to watch for every question that appeared in a course and make beautiful responses via video and load those into the course, right? But what that does is, It also means that you never actually are stuck for more than like half a second because there's always an answer right there, right? And so without that struggle and, you know, that moment where you actually get delivered the, you know, you struggle a little bit and then you see an answer, I I think we're, we may actually be doing a disservice to students by not letting them have that, a little bit of that struggle themselves. And that's, that's a really tough balance. It's actually the same balance we struggle with in in building video games. It's the struggle between um, frustration and boredom. If you're too bored, you stop playing the game. If you're too frustrated, you stop playing the game. If you somehow manage to balance that just right, you keep going, right? And I think that that's, you know, the joy we get out of learning is the the just right balance. If it's if we're too bored, if there's always an answer for us, if there's always, you know, the the perfect, you know, resources, we get kind of bored with the class. Like, ah, oh, what well, well, how fast can I get through this, right? On the other hand, if you get too frustrated, if you can't figure out the answer, if there's not an instructor to help you, if there's not, you know, peers to help you, you can also get too frustrated. I I think 
this is something we need to revisit in our courses a little bit. And maybe we still make the perfect videos, but we hold back on giving them to the students until somebody actually asks for one, right? Rather than just making it a perfect, you know, here is every answer you could ever want to have. Real life isn't about having every answer to every question. Sometimes you have to search and ask and talk to people. I think I've been really guilty of this in some of my in some of my own teaching because you do want to be helpful and you it's we, we hard to have. watch people get stuck. And it's funny because I was thinking even as you were talking, I was like, oh, and then but then in the quiz, you could have it right there in the video. But then I'm thinking, but you're not teaching them to get themselves unstuck if you provide it too much like oh you only got stuck for two seconds here's the you know versus like what are some ways that you could go explore things that you're going to be able to explore outside of this class and part of that's building a community and trusting that that all of us together are going to be far better than me just providing the answer (laughs) that's already pre-done and looks all pretty and you know specially designed well it's really tough it's really tough because we've we've all done it we've all done the thing where we like made every possible beautiful answer <laughs> we could, right? Um, I, but I, I think that that's potentially problematic for learning, especially long-term learning. Yeah. I, this is actually going to segue as nicely into the recommendation segment because people might remember that I've been doing some travel and have some coming up as well to do some keynote talks, which has been really fun. But I was telling my husband when I got back that he has to stop spoiling me so much when we travel together because that's mostly when we'll travel. And it's like, I get <laughs> I get into the airport and I'm like, I know that that the tickets on my watch because it's in the you know Apple watch and everything. So but it just feels so weird to like, not have a ticket in my hand. I'm not confident in my travel because he's been doing too much of it for me when we're together. And I'm like, I got to be able to do this by myself. So we haven't had that right <laughs> balance between frustration and boredom because I still <laughs> still like a little kid yep. in my travel. But speaking of my travels, I had such a great trip to the University of Georgia. And my recommendation, I have two of them today. One is that I got invited with Nick Holt and Helene Halstead and some other people from the University of Georgia to this amazing restaurant that I so wish I could tell you the name of, but I didn't write it down. (laughs) But what I did write down is I tried for the first time fried green tomatoes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) It was absolutely so delicious. So if you've never tried fried green tomatoes before, you got to find a restaurant somewhere where you live. And I can't even tell you if you live in Georgia, which one you should go to because I forgot the name of it, but I'm sure they can follow up and I can put it in the show notes once I get that information. And then the second recommendation, they were so kind and gave me a a gift of a few different items related to the University of Georgia, including a cookbook from the local community there. And I just thought, well, what a nice gift to give someone because it reminds you of that trip. It's specific to that geographic region and the kind of foods that they eat there. So it will always remind me of that. But it's also the gift that keeps on giving (laughs) because now I can cook dishes, I can get the kids involved and and just remember that special trip and try out some foods I haven't tasted before. So thank you to Helene and to Nick and everyone just for making my trip there so wonderful. And I thought those were such kind gifts. And, and I think I'm going to try to find a cookbook that's local to me here that I might be able to give to someone as a gift in the future. I thought that was really thoughtful. Sometimes I have a hard time coming up with good gifts. So that's, I'll tuck that in my, in my back pocket as a, a good gift for people. So I will pass it over to you, Maria, for your recommendations. Okay, so I'm going to recommend the IPVO high definition USB document camera. 
It, it costs a hundred bucks and it is exactly what I was looking for for the last year. Um, I used to use a PC to do all of my online math stuff and I had it down cold and everything worked great. And then I had the, I had the misfortune of switching to Mac five years ago. And I, you know, I like a lot about the Mac, but what I don't like about the Mac is it's really hard to do any kind of online math on a Mac. And so um, actually somebody recommended, I, I was, I was, expressing my woe to somebody else recently and she said hey did you know you can just buy a document camera for a hundred bucks and hook it up to your computer by usb and i'm like you're kidding me because you know my memory of document cameras is like these thousand dollar you know machines people put in the classrooms right years ago i had no idea you could buy a document camera for a hundred bucks so it turns out you buy this document camera you plug it into your computer you install a little piece of software and you can record it will do all the recording for you you can record yourself, you know, doing problems on a piece of paper. It'll do picture in picture, like from your computer and the document camera. It's amazing. And so now I don't have to try to mess with like finding the right software to, you know, make my Mac into a tablet, which is never going to happen. Um, or to hook up a tablet through my Mac to do the recording. I just, I just use this little document camera. It's great. It seems like one of those things too, as you were sharing about it, that people could have at their institution and share between multiple faculty because we have a lot of math faculty totally. who want something exactly like this but in their case I st stupidly maybe uh, naively told them like the iPad but sharing an iPad between multiple people and then trying to upload files it just seemed really messy this just seems so clean yeah well and the thing is like I already have the software on my computer to record videos right so all I need is a way to get the handwritten work to the computer and it's good right yeah and it turns out to be pretty clunky to do it via iPad and the tolerance and the quality of the writing on the iPad is just not as good as doing it on paper mm. <laughs> so like after years of you know doing everything via you know a PC tablet which was great the problem now is that the two-in-one touchscreens don't function like the old PC tablets did. So they, you know, they pick up your your hand, the side of your hand, and they they aren't as as clean as what we used to use with the old PC tablets. So I've just found that this is great. Like I can not only record myself writing a problem, but I can take my phone graphing app and just stick it on the same platform next to the problem I'm working on. They can see the the screen, it's got something that blocks the um, overhead lights from being recorded. It's just, it's like the best hundred bucks I've spent this year, I think. Oh, I hadn't even thought I'm about excited. the issue of light. That does sound really cool. Well, hmm, I have to have something on my holiday gift list. <laughs> Sounds really awesome. Yeah, but I think, I think your idea about sharing it, um, you know, having it in like a center for teaching and learning where anybody can come in and just start recording something they want to record, uh, you know, even off of the computer that's sitting there. Yeah. It's, it's just a great way to, you know, if you if you have to be gone for a day and you need to record a lecture or something, you've, you've got whatever you need. Well, Marie, it has been such a pleasure getting introduced to you. And I'm so energized after our conversation. I'm excited to build the show notes for this episode, which will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 177. And thank you so much for your generosity and being on the show. Oh, I'm happy to be here. It's fun. And if people want to follow up with you, they can find out information about you and your startup and other things, uh, links that they might want to go to at the show notes as well. And I encourage people to follow you on Twitter as well. Thanks. Thank you, Maria, once again, for being on this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. The show notes will be at teachinginhighered.com slash 177. If you've yet to subscribe to the weekly 
email update. You'll get all the links to the things that Maria and I talked about in an email along with an article on teaching or productivity. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening. And there's some great guests coming up in future weeks I'm excited to introduce to you. And I'll see you next time.